Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. Oh my gosh, I missed you guys. I know I just took a week off, but I am back. Hopefully I will be back. If you don't know, which you guys wouldn't, but I am currently moving. And so moving and working and like being a human is a lot sometimes. And so I had to take a little bit of a week off to try and get some stuff in here out and get ready to move my whole life back to Georgia, which is where I'm from. So, a lot going on in the Bobby sphere, but I'm back here for what I think is a very exciting episode. But of course, you guys know, we start with our opening minutes. These opening minutes, I will say, are not going to be too long because this episode is going to, there's a lot going on in this episode. So, I want to make sure that I have enough time to do that. But I cannot, uh, go on with this episode without discussing all of the absolute madness and chaos that has been sprouted from the new release from Marvel, Multiverse of Madness. It seems to me that many a person, mainly men, quite literally cannot wrap their heads around a woman's grief causing her to lose her mind a little bit and for her to be upset. And I think the greater issue is that no one is is saying that anyone needs to love this movie. Me personally, I saw it twice when it came out. I just thought it was fun. I I went in, I had a good time. I don't do scary, but it was, you know, it was a little bit of horror baked in, but I had a fun time and I was able to leave the movie being like, yeah, there were parts that I didn't like, but it's not the end of the world. And I went on about my day. And I think this movie is causing a lot of people on both sides of the coin, those who liked it and those who didn't, they can't quite get past it. And I think that is, it's it's a problem, I think. Like some, not every movie that comes out is going to be like hitting it out of the park. That is literally never how film has operated in, in this country or in the history of film in general, globally. Like not every film that's made is supposed to be good. And if you choose to watch a film and you just walk away really not enjoying it, you know, that's valid. If you walk, go to see a movie, you walk away and you love it. It's one of your new favorites. That's valid too. And sometimes you just find yourself in the middle where you have things that you liked, you had things that you didn't like, and then you're just like, well, that was a movie that I saw and now on to other things in life. I mean, I think sometimes with Marvel movies, especially because so many people have great emotional stakes in these characters, which is justifiable. Um... I think there is this expectation 
to have every single movie just be this knockout hit and that just is not possible for those of you who don't know the marvel cinematic universe the mcu is a feat unlike we've ever seen before in film thus far it's a franchise that has is nearing 30 movies total that all have some type of through line that connects them together, whether directly or indirectly. So at this point, when we're nearing the kind of 30 movie mark, the connections within them may get a little bit more hazy. I'll, I'll say I kind of got in on the MCU um, in the early days. The first movie that I saw from them was the was the Avengers. And that's what kind of hooked me in. And I've been here ever since and I cannot leave. No. It's, do I feel trapped? A little, a little bit, but you know what? We move on. We persevere. But uh, I've, I've been, I've seen a lot of MCU movies and I've definitely just taken the approach that not every movie is going to be for me. And why would I judge the movie? Because it was not catered to my very specific taste. When sometimes there are plenty of things to critique in these movies you can critique the direction you can critique the writing you can critique you know the dynamics of the characters there's a bunch of things that are worth critique because that is what film is that is the that's a part of the the intake of, of movies is to critique it and analyze it not to the point of just ripping it apart but like that's a part of the the exhibition of, of movies, like the movie going experiences to talk about it. And so I think there's just a lot of people who are going in with, I wouldn't say like lofty expectations, but I think they're just kind of getting away from the fact that at the end of the day, these are movies. The MCU is comprised of movies. Not every movie is going to be spectacular and amazing. And that's okay because then when one comes along that you're like, oh my gosh, that was so good you can like immediately recognize it and know like oh this is a great film i really enjoyed it for these different aspects so this whole shebang with this godforsaken movie i think it's just like people have kind of gotten away from like what what is film like what is film criticism how do we engage with the movies that come out how should we engage with them is there a way to engage with them and i think it's it just it kind of just muddies the water so much also for the dudes who are kind of saying like well I didn't like Wanda because she was written in a pretty misogynistic way it feels like you're pandering in a way like you could have some valid critiques of the character but every time you begin and one of my my mutuals and, and good friends Jay Stoops mentioned this in her video but the minute that you find yourself as a man centering yourself in any discussions of feminism take a moment to consider what are you saying that may have led you down this path. Take a beat, think on it, marinate on it, and maybe readjust, perhaps readjust. That might be for the best, but I digress. I'm, I'm simply tired of this movie. I tweeted this, but I am sick of Multiverse of Madness May, and we're moving into Jurassic World Dominion June, <laughs> and that is where my excitement will be. So I hope that you will join me and the rest of the Jurassic Park fandom as we get excited to see our three faves on screen <laughs> once again. That is where my focus is. I have no emotional <laughs> real estate left for Multiverse of Madness. It's all about the dinos, baby. 
Oh my gosh. Anyways, a lot of upfronts are happening right now, which upfronts are essentially kind of just like previews for advertisers from the different streamers and networks. So Disney will do an upfront and they talk about all the new shows and movies that are coming down the pipeline in the next couple of months. And that gets advertisers ready to, you know, advertise around and get get excited. So we've gotten a lot of things in anticipation for that. We got a trailer for She-Hulk and that's already begun a lot of talks around like the MCU and CGI. I've talked about CGI work on this podcast before and essentially my thoughts boil down to almost all critiques of CGI from people who are not within the industry almost always end up punching down on the VFX artists who probably didn't have enough time or uh, money because they're extremely underpaid and overworked the work to the best of their ability these are world-class vfx artists so it's not it doesn't come wonky cgi doesn't come from lack of ability it probably comes from lack of time so that's literally my only two cents on this whole shield <laughs> debacle but we also yesterday got a trailer for one of my most anticipated tv shows of this year, which is season two of Only Murders in the Building. I watched Only Murders in the Building the day that it dropped because I I love Steve Martin. I love Martin Short. And I, you know what? I was a Selena Gomez girly back in the day. So I love this show. If you haven't seen it, it is a, um, it's three people who live in this building, this beautiful building in New York. And they all listen to this murder podcast. And then there's a murder in their building. And they start their own murder casts for murder podcasts to solve the murder in their building. Um, it's a it's a comedy. It's super duper funny, thrilling at certain points, like especially towards the end. And so now season two is uh, coming out on June 28th on Hulu. And I'm very excited for that. And I think it's an easy shoe in, hopefully, for an Emmy nom for outstanding comedy i think outstanding comedy is gonna be a really really contentious really contentious group this year we got a lot of great comedies that came out in the last year um so i don't know it's gonna if you don't know me i've talked about it but emmys bobby that is me at my highest form i think i am an emmys girly i love movies but tv in the emmys is that's where it's a sport for me like there are a few things, there are a few like competitive sports that I watch. I'm a big pro wrestling fan. I watch my alma mater, UGA, with college football, and then there's the Emmys. Those are the three things that I get incredibly competitive about. So Emmy season is right around that corner, so I'm very excited for that. But either way, point is, uh, watch Only Murders in the Building if you haven't in anticipation for the new season because it's really good. And lastly... This week begins at the Cannes Film Festival, which is a film festival that takes place in France. Uh, and a lot of film festival and like films uh, are exhibited there and they compete for the Palme d'Or, which is kind of like the, uh, the top prize of this film festival. For all of us who love a good blockbuster and aren't really into the hoity-toity films, the Palme d'Or is kind of just like, it's the end-all be-all of what you can win. And a lot of the movies that go there and compete for it are kind of the most or amongst the most prestige film very like indie class like a lot of those movies there are definitely movies that the general public like ones that they've seen that have won a palm d'or parasite is one that i think is coming in mind that i think a lot of people saw and really enjoyed but i literally have nothing else 
to talk about with the cons because I have, I, I, I don't follow cons all that closely, but it's just happening this week. So that's something that's happening in pop culture. But speaking of cons, I really wanted to talk about it because it leads into what we're talking about today. And we're going to be talking about one of the few animated films that have been chosen to compete for the highly sought after Palme d'Or, which is Shrek. As I just described, the Palme d'Or is kind of the the hoity-toity prize of these hoity-toity films. So it's very shocking that Shrek was chosen to compete for, but I think it's a testament to the type of film that Shrek is. So that's what we're talking about today. I don't think it needs much preamble. I, I don't think I need to introduce you to Shrek or, or any really anything in this in this episode, but I will say we're going to be talking about Shrek and I would hope that you'll stay tuned to the end because I have a little surprise that's tied to the content of this episode. So if that sounds good to you, let's get started. Released in 2001, Shrek was a film that by all accounts should not have been as successful as it was. I mean, it had no dashing protagonist, no magical being that dramatically helps change the course of the hero's journey, and no saccharinely sweet lesson at the end of the film where the hero finds out that what he wanted was inside of him all along. But it does have a singing princess, so, you know, semantics. Armed with a group of misfits to fill out the cast and crew, a story with a lot of laughs and a surprising amount of heart, and a soundtrack that could bring some of film's greatest soundtracks to its knees, Shrek has endured the massive waves of pop culture and been able to transform in the process. But how did Shrek become the world's most famous ogre? Well, the story of how Shrek came to take over the world doesn't begin with the film, it actually begins with a book. William Steig was a New Yorker cartoonist turned author and was considered to be the king of cartoons. His work was a little bit absurdist, a little off the beaten path, but it was enjoyed by both kids and the adults who were reading his books to them. Steig had released such classics as Yellow and Pink, Dr. DeSoto, Brave Irene, and on October 17, 1990, his book Shrek was released. Now, if you can believe it, Shrek in the book Shrek is worse than Shrek in the film Shrek. If you don't believe me, allow me to read you the first page of Steig's Shrek. Quote, his mother was ugly and his father was ugly, but Shrek was uglier than the two of them put together. By the time he toddled, Shrek could spit a flame a full 99 yards and vent smoke from either ear. With just a look, he cowed the reptiles in the swamp. Any snake dumb enough to bite him instantly got convulsions and died. A really great character for the kitties, I think. Shrek is purposefully antagonistic to those around him in the book Shrek, and he saunters through the forest spitting literal fire and eating lightning bolts, generally just being an absolute menace. The story of the book is rather simple. Shrek is sent out into the forest and comes upon a witch. He asks the witch to tell him his future. She tells him that a donkey will take him on a journey to meet a princess who was even uglier than he is. He continues on this journey. He meets the donkey. He fights at night. He discovers mirrors for the first time. And then he meets his princess. They marry and they live horribly ever after. By 1991, the rights for the book had been sold and purchased with the intent to turn the story into a film. And you may be wondering, well, who was that buyer? Well, the buyer was just an indie director named Steven Spielberg. You probably haven't heard of him. Spielberg has always been a pretty strong proponent for animation and has always taken great interest in it. 
I'm remembering a clip from around maybe like the 70s or early 80s where Steven Spielberg talks about how every live action film director should begin as an animator um, because animators have to anything they want to appear within a frame or appear within a film or short or whatever it is. They have to put it there. There's a lot more of a methodology and it's a lot more calculated than in certain cases when live action directors kind of go, they can shoot and then something can fall into frame that they hadn't expected and they can kind of make it work from there. It's a lot more purposeful. It's purposeful work. And I think it helps to kind of become a more well-rounded director. That's kind of, that was Spielberg's uh, whole kind of thesis statement around that. He has executive producer credits on some of the 80s and 90s biggest animated projects in both film and television, including The Land Before Time, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Animaniacs, Tiny Toons Adventures, Freakazoid, and so much more. The man was invested in animation. And I will say a tiny little fun fact. If you've seen The Land Before Time, the scene where kind of all of the, the meteors are falling and the rocks are falling on the dinosaurs, which originally was set to be cut because a lot of the filmmakers on the film were like, this is a little too heavy for kids. And Spielberg, who, like I said, was an executive producer on the film, opted to keep it in because he explained that, you know, this is the circle of life. Kids shouldn't have to, they shouldn't be able to kind of run away from this very like core life lesson. And so they they kept it in and I'm sure many kids were scarred by that but they learned the circle of life and then like a couple years later they learned it again in the Lion King so really animation is really driving home the lesson of the circle of life um anyways just one last thing on Spielberg he is as much a prolific producer as he is a director like he's been an executive producer on the live action Flintstones movies Poltergeist and all the Transformers movies This is why I love him. He's a legend. His vision for Shrek was for his animation studio, Amblimation, which was a branch of his production studio, Amblin Entertainment. Amblimation at that point had made such classics as An American Tale, Five Old Goes West, We're Back, A Dinosaur Story, which was technically the second dinosaur-related project that he was tied to in 1993, the other being Jurassic Park. Steven loves his dinos. What can I say? What we know about Emblemation's version of Shrek was that it was intended to be a 2D animated film, and it was set to have Bill Murray and Steve Martin in lead roles, presumably as Shrek and Donkey. However, production-wise, it just never got off the ground, so it was canned. Canned until 1994. In 1984, CEO of the Walt Disney Company, Michael Eisner, appointed Jeffrey Katzenberg to head a failing motion picture and feature animation department of the company. Under his leadership, Disney turned out such classics as The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. However, by 1994, Katzenberg had left Disney due to some Real Housewives-level drama that is absolutely a story for another day. Pissed off, angry, and having quite literally nothing to lose, Katzenberg rallied together his industry buddies, David Guest and Steven Spielberg, and together they created DreamWorks SKG. That is what the SKG in DreamWorks SKG stands for. Spielberg, Katzenberg, and Guest. To say that this company was partially formed out of spite is quite literally an understatement. Katzenberg wanted to watch Disney burn, albeit professionally and he was willing to do just about anything to make that happen 
So we established that Spielberg had bought the rights to the film all the way back in 1991 and tried to make it, but he just couldn't get it off the ground. His option for the rights had expired, so Shrek was again up for grabs. In the early days of DreamWorks, producer John H. Williams' kids actually got a hold of the Shrek book and loved it, and eventually Williams himself fell in love with the book. And then Williams brought it to Katzenberg. Katzenberg was intrigued. It was a great story, but the irreverence of the character of Shrek opened up the possibility of creating a film that could be the perfect counter to Disney's wholesome and sweet Renaissance-era films. Katzenberg wanted Shrek to rip that idea to shreds, sometimes much to the chagrin of those working on the project. The rights were repurchased and production began on Shrek in 1995. In the beginning days of the film, there was almost a revolving door of filmmakers put on the project, and it definitely could be deduced that the still-growing DreamWorks Animation Studio approached staffing the film by putting pretty much any warm body on the project. Shrek was never truly a priority project for the studio. Yes, Katzenberg saw the potential of Shrek enough to purchase the rights to it, but the focus of early DreamWorks was, quote, animation for adults. And they definitely attempted that, especially with Ants and the Prince of Egypt. Much of the studio's focus was put onto the Prince of Egypt, an epic of biblical proportions that was meant to be DreamWorks' kind of coming out party and a way to show Disney that they were a studio not to be reckoned with. Similar to when you're cooking and you kind of just dash any kind of seasoning into what you're cooking and you pray that you didn't make poison, that's kind of how people were added to Shrek. But they definitely didn't make poison. There were rumors that Shrek was kind of seen as the gulag of DreamWorks and that animators who weren't doing well on other projects were sent to work on Shrek as kind of a pseudo punishment. Allegedly, it was called getting Shreked if you got sent to work on Shrek when you kind of mess up on another project. Interesting. This may sound cruel, but it's worth noting that this same thing happened with the team on The Lion King. During its production, Disney had The Lion King and Pocahontas kind of running concurrently production-wise, and Pocahontas was actually seen as the A-team project, and Lion King was the B-team project. Lion King went on to become the highest-grossing 2D animated movie of all time, and Pocahontas was a movie that was made. So, this happening on track definitely wasn't a bad sign. In fact, without having the watchful eye of the studio on them and the pressure to make it the thing that puts the studio on the map, this meant that they could have a little bit more room to be creative. Though the film's team was still kind of being assembled, by this time it finally got a director or directors in Andrew Adamson and Vicki Jensen. So they were co-directors. So I mentioned that they had a little bit more room to be creative. So creative that the Shrek team briefly considered using motion capture technology to create the film. If you're not familiar with motion capture technology, it was probably popularized most with the production of Avatar. So you have um, your actors in these uh, suits that are like body, body tight, and they put a b- bunch of like dots on their face, and they have a bunch of like dots attached to their body. And essentially, they're kind of like mapping all the CGI and graphics and stuff onto the actors. So the actors act normally in like a facility that is meant 
for motion capture technology. They act normally and then they take all of the the mapping that they've done on these actors and in kind of post-production work, they, you know, map the character on top of the actor. It's kind of like if you're familiar with animation, it's like rotoscoping when they took a kind of source clip and they just drew and traced on top of that. It's like the highest form of that pretty much. So they flirted with the idea of using motion capture technology, albeit very briefly. So according to editor Sam Evan Jones, the initial discussions on the film involved kind of conversations around using motion capture technology, and this is how they remember it. Quote, it was basically going to be shot motion capture by these guys called the propeller heads. They were the three guys that we knew, Rob Lauterman, Lauren Soman, and Andy Weisler. Then there was this other guy back in New York who was the writer. It turned out that the writer was a young J.J. Abrams. Abrams wrote the test we did motion capture on. It was like 45 seconds. What they wanted to do was use puppets for the four-legged characters. They had people in fat suits and it was just a big fat mess, end quote. So motion capture didn't last long. That idea kind of came and went. Not only did the filmmakers on Trek not really like the idea, but Katzenberg all just did not like it and he just thought it would not work. And so it kind of died. But it's really cool that J.J. Abrams kind of was a, had the potential to be a writer on Trek for just a little bit. So motion capture was out, but that did open the door for a technique that was still relatively new and still kind of gaining its footing, which is computer-generated imagery or CGI. Story-wise, the lack of studio supervision allowed for the filmmakers to make the film funny. The only problem was that they didn't know who the film was supposed to be funny for, kids or adults. Katzenberg wanted both, while the crew wanted to lean more towards adults. Eventually, they were able to kind of all agree on a, quote, adult comedy that was accessible to kids versus the usual kids movie that was accessible to adults. The production of the film was underway. The story was beginning to take shape, and now they just needed a cast. Allegedly, Nicolas Cage was initially offered the role of Shrek, but he turned it down. The role then went on to comedian Chris Farley. In fact, Farley had completed nearly all of his lines for the film. However, in the middle of production, Farley passed away. Quickly, the film had to recast for the lead role, and that part went to Farley's fellow SNL alumni, Mike Myers. The rest of the cast filled out with Eddie Murphy as Donkey, Cameron Diaz as Princess Fiona, and John Lithgow as Lord Farquaad. And by 2001, the film was completed and ready to premiere. Shrek premiered at the 2001 Cannes Film Festival and competed, like I said, for the Palme d'Or, becoming the first animated film since Disney's Peter Pan all the way back in 1953 to be chosen to do so. And of course, the rest is indeed history. Shrek would go on to become a giant in film. It was the first film to win Best Animated Feature. It went on to gross $487.9 million at the box office, spawned three sequels, one spinoff, and the strangest merchandising you've ever seen in your life. Quite literally, Shrek is a pop culture institution. Whew. That was a doozy. 
But I hope you enjoy today's episode, Afternooners. If you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you've made it to the end of this episode, congratulations, you're an Afternooner now. So I mentioned at the top of the episode that I had a little bit of a surprise that was tied to this episode. And the surprise is that this episode is kind of a companion piece for a longer form YouTube video that I will be posting the last week of May first week of June discussing kind of a retrospective of Shrek. So you guys got a sneak peek basically of the script and I will be doing a longer form video on that in the last week of May. So be very excited for that. I'm thinking that it will probably, hopefully, fingers crossed, be up by at least maybe June 3rd. Let's flirt with that idea. By next week, I'll have a much much greater idea of when it will be done, but like tentatively, the day that the video will be up will be June 3rd. So woohoo, get excited for that. But yeah, I I wanted to kind of test the waters and see if you guys liked it. And I, I'm hoping that you guys enjoyed this episode and that you'll, you know, come and check me out over on YouTube. Uh, and yeah, I'll be talking about Shrek in a little bit more detail. So if that's something that you're interested in, get excited. But in the meantime, if you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at The Afternoon Special on TikTok or on Instagram, also at The Afternoon Special, or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby, H-I-I-M-B-O-B-B-I. You can keep up with this podcast specifically over on Instagram at Hi, I'm Bobby Podcast, and that is all one word. If you're thinking, Bobby, I just found out that you're going to be putting out a YouTube video and like that's a lot for me right now and I need to prepare and it's like I only have two weeks and I'm just very nervous. Bestie, don't be nervous. Just get excited. And I will say that I put all of that information in the description box just for you so you don't have to remember all that. I know at this point in the episode, I usually do the, this episode was powered by, but I actually had some audio messages. So we're going to take a little listen and answer some some of the questions that you guys have submitted. I'm I'm really grateful that you guys still want to like submit audio messages to me. So, the first audio message and I hope I promise you I am not trying to butcher your name, but I hope I get it correct is Tolawani. So, let's take a listen. Hey Bobby, I really love your podcast. Ever since you announced that you like starting one on TikTok, and this is every single episode. Um, I just want to ask, like, um, in Endgame, like, when uh, Thanos um, unalived Gamora, and, like, they were in this realm where, like, you could see, like, a child version of her, like, maybe, I was wondering, like, maybe that has something to do with the field of breeds in Moon Knight, and that was, like, a version of, I guess, balancing her skills, and maybe the souls don't have something to do with dwarfs and and uh, the field of reeds. So, number one, thank you so much for submitting that audio message, and I really appreciate you listening to every episode. That's so cool. Um. I definitely think that your theory has got some legs. Like, I am definitely not a Marvel theorist. I go in 
what's on the screen is what I'm taking in. I I don't do homework for movies, but I do think that your your theory definitely like has a lot of validity to it. I think the idea of kind of judgment and balancing scales and you know the whole thing with like the soul stone um I definitely think that's kind of a through line for this era of of Marvel I think Marvel is definitely getting a lot more like figurative and leaning more into the emotional aspect of it I made a video yesterday or two days ago talking about how grief is being portrayed in a much more realistic way in the MCU now and I think it's absolutely brilliant so I definitely think there could be a tie with the soul stone and the field of reads in the in moon Knight, so yeah i agree i i got i wish i had more to say i wish i had some comic book textbook evidence but i unfortunately do not but i definitely think your your theory is spot on and i love when you guys you know are thinking thinking about stuff and you want to share it with me and we can think together it's amazing i love that so thank you so much for that message so we're moving on to our last message of the episode and this one is from liz Hi, Bobby. Um, I just listened to an episode of your podcast on malls, and I wanted to um, let you know that it inspired me to go listen to Tiffany's I Think We're Alone Now. Um, I also think that you have a, a great podcasting voice and really enjoy listening to you talk about topics. Um, well, this is the first time I've listened to your podcast, but I found you through your TikTok. You came on my For You page. So I'm super excited to listen to more. And um, the other thing I wanted to ask was what happened to the unalived body? Um, was it a murder, suicide, somebody just dropped dead at Subway? Um, really, really curious. I don't live in Georgia, but my dad does. So I'm kind of familiar with the area and some of the malls, um, although not that one in particular. Just curious. Um, thanks so much. My name's Liz. I don't know if that matters. Bye. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much, Liz. I really appreciate that. I am always excited to know like if you guys are coming from TikTok or if you like discover me not on TikTok, you don't even know that I have a TikTok. I don't know where you guys are coming from. So the fact that you're here makes me feel all warm and fuzzy and I really appreciate that. As far as I know, what Liz is referring to is a, a story that I mentioned in a couple podcast episodes ago where the mall that is featured Starcourt Mall and Stranger Things is basically the mall that is not too far away from me called Gwinnett Place Mall in my hometown. That's where I think they might have shot. Yeah, they shot there. So Starcourt Mall is just Gwinnett Place Mall. And I mentioned that that mall, infamously, there was a, a dead body that was found in the subway at that mall. So I, I didn't know too, too much about what what went on with the story kind of as a whole but I went back and I found it unfortunately it was a murder it was a college student and their boyfriend murdered them and left their body in the subway by this point I think the the mall kind of had basically been all but kind of abandoned so it's not like it was a mall that was frequented all that much um so it was a place that uh was pretty much abandoned so yeah, that's that's as far as I know, you know, my, my heart goes out to to the young the young woman who lost her life there. It was it's it's a sad story. I think it's just very being from Georgia and being from that area is just always like 
thinking about that place. I'm like, that's what I think of. And other people are like, oh, that's Starcourt Mall. I'm like, you don't know what happened there. You don't know the story. And because I am who I am, I can't help but, uh, for whatever reason, mention it every time it comes up. So that's what I know. That's all I know. Um, but I, I invite you to do more more digging. This is the closest that I'll get to doing a true crime uh, podcast. But that's that's what I know. But I appreciate you guys for sending in some audio messages. And you definitely still can do it. I keep it in my description on every single episode. So if you feel so moved to do so, you absolutely can. And I will answer it. But if you guys like the this episode is powered by, of course, I still got you. This episode was powered by The Simpsons. I have been on a big a Simpsons kind of a kick lately. I It's one of my favorite shows of all time. I've watched so many episodes there are so many episodes left for me to watch but I've watched a lot it's one of my favorite shows so I'm kind of in a little bit of a Simpsons mood right now I'm probably just in a big adult animation mood right now because the Bob's Burgers movie is coming out in just a week or two and I'm very excited for that it's one of my movies of the year so I'll probably be watching Bob's Burgers once this podcast episode is done but yeah this is a long episode. This is probably one one of the longest ones, but I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you will join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Whether you're in a relationship, single, or recently heartbroken... You could be navigating some tough stuff. And it really can be challenging to do this on your own. We all need help when it comes to our relationships, very specifically, our love lives. I'm Jillian, and each week on my podcast, Jillian on Love, I share skills on how to strengthen our relationships, how to build a stronger sense of self, and how to heal heartbreak and choose better partners. Learn how to start making change today and search for Jillian on Love wherever you're listening now.